0: Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Aaron, and I have the distinct pleasure of making a few announcements this morning. Uh, Number one, the Better Together Couples Conference. It's coming up February 23rd. I won't be there because I am not a couple. I am just a one. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Come on. Uh, Number two, circles. They're happening. So if you're not already in one, I would encourage you to join one. If you want more information on that, it's in the little thing. Uh, number three are check-ins. If you check in on Facebook, that is going to generate a donation for our very own Candace Cooper, who is preparing to go out into the world on mission. Uh, and that's all we've got. So we are going to take an offering. So I'm going to pass these buckets around in a minute, but let's pray first. <laughs> Um, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time uh, that we are able to set aside for you. Thank you for the privilege to get together and worship you um, and get a tiny glimpse of who you are today. Uh, I just ask that you would bless our offering for your work in your kingdom. Amen.
1: Let's pray. God, God, it is our prayer uh, this morning that you would be enthroned in our hearts. That means, God, that you would be at our very center and our very core. Lord Jesus, our prayer today is that you would have more of us, that we would see you more clearly, that we would hear you more clearly, that we would obey you more quickly, not because we're trying to Earn anything, but simply because we want to be with you and be like you and to do what you do. And so, Holy Spirit, come and speak and be real and be present. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, so kids can go back with Miss Kayla. Everybody else, you can have a seat. Let me get myself situated here. Uh, hey, my name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here. I say one of because just because I have the title doesn't mean that there aren't other people that have the gifting, and there are. A um, couple things real quick. If you're new to Regen and you've not filled out a hay card, which is kind of back in the foyer. Actually, if you all turn around, you'll see a very beautiful woman holding a very cute baby. Uh, and immediately to her right is a table with uh, some cards. If you fill that out, it just gets you on our email list. Um, if you're not on our email list, you have no idea what's happening in our community. So the first step to kind of getting a sense of what's going on is getting on that email list. So do that next weekend, our couples conference, Better Together. Be there or be square uh, or a circle, whatever you need to be. Um, it, I'm really excited to have Bob and Pam here to talk about healthy relationships and how we dive into that. So uh, if you are thinking about coming and haven't signed up or are on the fence, get off the fence and sign up, one. Two, if you could sign up online by tomorrow, that would be fire. That would be great. So that way we could make sure everything's ready to go. So anyway, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Deal? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Practicing the way of Jesus. I'm using this mic because there's some really hot one-liners. And that way when I say them, I can drop the mic and leave. Okay. Oh, dang. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to take off my wedding ring because sometimes it clicks on that. Okay, so last week we looked at this working theory for change, right? Vision, intention, means. We're borrowing this from Dallas Willard. In order to be transformed in the image of Jesus, I need a vision of what I'm trying to become. I need means, useful means that help me achieve the vision. And I need to make it my intention to chase that vision down. And uh, that's really all well and good until you start doing it and you realize it's harder than it sounds. It it, it is hard to have a crystal clear picture of Jesus. When we go to take up those useful means, studying scripture, praying, fasting, attending a community, gathering for worship, suddenly we're bored or busy or distracted. Our intentions uh, often are failing and lax. We meet resistance as we seek to practice the way of Jesus. We do not practice the way of Jesus in a vacuum, and that resistance, that resistance to practicing the way of Jesus, I don't know about you, but from my experience, seems to come from the outside, but it also seems to come from the inside. The resistance I experience as I'm trying to practice the way of Jesus seems to kind of be out there, but it also seems to be inside of me, and that resistance that we feel when we're trying to practice the way of Jesus, the word for that is sin, and once upon a time, we walked with God, uh, we talked with God, we lived with God, without challenge, without this resistance, and then in a garden called Eden, that relationship with God was severely damaged. Jesus comes to restore that relationship. Jesus comes to restore that relationship that was fractured. And by the way, um, somebody, uh, the Coopers got us a book for Jack called The Greatest Story, Um, which in a very short amount of time tells the whole story of the Bible. And we were going to be reading it one chapter at a time to Jack for a little while, and then we were putting him to sleep last night, and I couldn't help but finish it, and it made me cry. If you need to know the whole arc of the Bible, the Bible is not isolated stories. If you want to know the story that Jesus is telling, buy the biggest story. I don't care if you're 75. You will figure things out by reading this book. Okay, anyway. So we don't practice the way of Jesus. We're living in this world... That is not the way it's supposed to be because of sin. We live in a world, as Genesis says, that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over us. There is a battle for your heart and my heart being waged right now in this moment. And every day we wake up and decide which side of the war we're fighting on. Practicing the way of Jesus is choosing to fight on the side of good and righteousness and the kingdom. But other times we are tempted to fight on the other side. Sin draws us in. We are opposed. We are opposed in our practice of the way of Jesus. Our best intentions are spoiled. Our best efforts fail because of our age-old enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, See, I shouldn't have done this. There we go. Okay. I'm going to turn around again. Okay, so you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What Paul is describing here is he's describing sin. He is describing this not the way it's supposed to be-ness, this this resistance that we feel. And he does it with some complexity, doesn't he? he? He paints with broad brushes three sources or three masks that sin and temptation wear. The world the flesh, and the devil. The early church wrote about these a lot. The early church delved down into these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they understood that each of these three present to our heart unique temptations, unique challenges, unique strategies for our downfall. And this morning, I want to take up uh, what Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, know thine enemy. If we understand our enemy, if we understand that which opposes us, and we understand its strategies, we can overcome it. In fact, what we'll see by the end of the sermon is objectively and positionally, we have already been given victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. What we need to do is make that victory real in our experience, and that is what practicing the way of Jesus is all about. I want to slow down the action of the play and look at these verses for a second. Sin and temptation, wear these three masks, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to define them in a second. But but notice, notice what Paul's doing. He, he's helping pastors, spiritual guides, point us to how to practice the way, the way of Jesus in real time. And this triad of world, the flesh, and the devil comes out of Ephesians 2. And, and again, look at what Paul is saying. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. He says, you were dead in the eyes of God, someone who hasn't stepped across the line of faith, who hasn't begun a personal relationship with Jesus, Is someone to be loved, someone to be shown mercy, is an object of God's affection, and yet they are spiritually dead. And this is why, we talked about this a little bit last week, we need more than a redecoration of the heart, we need a renovation of the heart. See, redecorating our hearts keeps us dead in a really nice Christian Hobby Lobby house. What Jesus wants to do is rip out everything and start up from the beginning, Joanna Gaines, shiplap. Holy Spirit, shiplap, love, shiplap. You know what I'm saying? And and so this renovation of the heart is all about moving out of this deadness. Hear me on this. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus does not make bad people good or meh, okay-ish, 50-50 people better. It makes dead people alive. It makes dead people alive. Uh, The gospel... Uh, says that pre-Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We are shut down to the things of God. But then, notice what Paul says, starting in verse 4. He says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, notice... God's mercy and love extends to us even in the midst of our brokenness and our deadness and our sinfulness. He gave us life when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Notice verse 7 says, In the ages to come, God will not point to us and say, Look at how responsible and good Christians they were. Weren't they nice people? He'll actually say, Let's use you, Caitlin. Let's use you, Jen. Let's use you, Vanessa, as an example of my riches of kindness and goodness. Not because you were amazing but because you weren't, and I brought you into my family. It is by God's grace we have been saved. There's nothing that we can do to earn, We're now, in, but we are in a conversation about effort. I could probably preach a sermon about each one of these, but what Paul is identifying in verses 4 through 7, you might say, is what is positionally or objectively true about us. In God's eyes, I, having stepped across the line of faith and making myself an apprentice to Jesus, am positionally and objectively seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. I have, Ephesians 1, been blessed with every blessing of the spiritual realms, which unfortunately does not mean a jet or a lot of money. It does mean a Ford Flex, so watch out, sexy Flexy. But um, it does not mean stuff. But positionally, objectively, I am forgiven and free in the gospel. Practicing, but what we know in our experience is that, that what is positionally true about us isn't always experientially true. Though I am forgiven and free in God's eyes, positionally and objectively, the practice of the way of Jesus is how I make what is objectively true experientially true. The practice of the way of Jesus is how I make what is objectively true about me, now that I've stepped across the line of faith, which is that I am forgiven and free and seated in the, in the heavenly places with Christ, Uh, that I am an inheritor of his grace and kindness, Uh, what, what makes that experientially true is the practice of the way of Jesus. But we are opposed in that practice. There is resistance to making what is objectively true experientially true. We are opposed, actually, in three ways, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you don't have to follow Jesus long before you realize that there is a resistance to becoming more like Jesus. And that resistance, that resistance seems to come from two places. It seems to come from somewhere outside of me, but it also seems to come from somewhere inside of me. And that's what this concept of the world, the flesh, and the devil is trying to get at. So I want to talk about the, the, what this means. So, first, Paul talks about the world. He says, we followed the course of this world. If you go to the next one, Dan, there's underlines for me. There you go. He says, we followed the course of this world. Now, world in the Bible can mean multiple things. It can mean a grouping of people. God so loved the world. It can mean like the planet. But in this particular case, in this particular case, world means a system of thinking and believing and behaving that is both unconsciously and consciously opposed to God. This is one of those outside resistors, a world that has a different set of values than the people of Jesus, the world. The second source of sin and temptation comes from, Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the spiritual beings that we would call demons, chief among whom is Satan. This is a hard pill for 21st century people to follow. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that we make one of two errors. We believe in the devil too little or we believe in the devil too much. Um, but we are actively opposed by a personal evil whose primary role is to deceive and accuse, to entice you away from the things of Jesus. And we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but the enemy, the way the enemy works, the way Satan works in 21st century Western culture is not overt, it's covert. We'll talk about that. So the, Paul talks about following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And then he says, we lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, flesh, again, multiple meanings in the Bible, can mean like the stuff on my bones, my body. But it can also mean this part of myself that has yet to be redeemed. The Puritans called it indwelling sin, that even after we've put our faith in Jesus, there's something in me that makes me want what I know I shouldn't want and hate what I know I should love. That is our flesh, that tug of war inside of you, it, that, that disorder of our desires is our flesh. And, and here's what I would say. I said this, I, I said it at the last campus, I'm going to say this out loud and see if I agree with it. I said it and I agree with it, so we're going to try it again. But I would say, Satan is our chief opposition in this age. He is not equal with God by any means, but he is our chief opposition and at his disposal, he has our flesh and the world. I think that's true. Debate with me later if it's not, and at the very least say, the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to oppose us as we practice the way of Jesus. John Mark Kummer, um, here's what I need you to know. I am not an expert. It took me about 20 hours this week to put this sermon together. Well, it took me about 20 hours over about three weeks to put the sermon together. So I am, this is not all off the top of Kyle's head. I think it's important to say that, because I think you think I'm just doing this, okay? I am the chief resource officer. I am not like the chief expert officer, Okay. And so um, John Mark Kummer, a pastor in Portland, has been preaching on some of this. And the way he frames this that I really liked is he says "The the devil's primary stratagem to drive human souls and society into ruin is this. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful desire. So deceptive ideas come from Satan who wants to deceive us so he seeds our minds and seeds our culture with ideas of, with lies and deceit that are contrary to God. And they play to disordered desires. They play to a heart that is not entirely yet God's. And then those disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society, they are applauded. Do you see? deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Again, we have victory over these things, and I'm going to give you tools by the end of the sermon to fight back. It'll be about 45 minutes, so chill out. Just get relaxed. I'm kidding. It won't be that long. But I want to look at the three of these really quick. So let's talk about the world. The world is out there, and I would almost call that environmental confusion that comes from redefining words in a way that's rebellious to God redefining words in a way that's rebellious to God. Um, the world, when the Bible talks about the world in a negative sense, it almost always means what you and I mean when we say the word culture. Whether that's like Cardi B, pop culture, right? I almost said Katy Perry, but I tried to like up-level it a little bit, get a little closer to now, see? Um, pop culture, but even culture is just the things that we do and say and think and and, and say without thinking about it. That's, when, the, when the Bible talks about the world, it kind of talks about culture. Dallas Willard says our culture that the world is, our culture and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus are opposed to God. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., love that name, don't you? Cornelius Plantinga Jr., that means there's like two of them running around. That's cool. He's got a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says a cult, the world is a culture, a pattern of beliefs, social forms, dispositions, and values that are institutionalized in the people's collective life. Paul warns against being conformed to the pattern of this world in Romans 12.2. In Colossians 2.8, he says that the elemental spirits of this world, notice how Paul blends them, that the elemental spirits of this world, a.k.a. the dark spirits of this world, have, are trying to capture our minds and hearts with philosophy and empty deceit. And it's not like getting a philosophy degree at college means that you're going to be deceived. It means trying to win arguments with us about the way that we think. That's what the world does. Ultimately, it tries to, the world is trying to get us to call evil good and good evil. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, what our world is trying to get us to do is redefine words in a way that are, put us in rebellion to God. They try to redefine the word good, in a way that is evil, and they try to redefine the word evil in a way that is good. I like that last one. I think it helps us. They try to give us what is bitter and call it sweet. That's what the world does. Um, In the last 20 years, we have seen our culture do this at a speed unprecedented in human society. Okay? And uh, to prove this to you, I'm going to hit both the political right and the political left. Okay? So on the political left... Um, New York's passing of a late-term abortion law is a really good example of calling good, evil, and evil good. My son is going to be, oh, he was born four weeks ago yesterday. Uh, he'll be one month on Tuesday, which means a month and one day ago, we could have said he's not a person. We need to get rid of him in the state of New York. Okay, that's hitting you on the political left. Let me hit you on the political right. Let's build a wall to keep out anybody, with anybody that is a refugee because they all want to hurt us and kill us. Let's change the nature of the conversation so that every person trying to get into our country has an evil intent. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus was almost the subject of a late-term abortion. He was tried to, he, Herod tried to kill him shortly after he was born. Okay? Okay. What we do, and this, so it's not a political after political right thing. We're always redefining good and evil to make our argument. That's what the world does. So that's the world. The flesh has to do with this internal disorder. And by the way, if I'm oversimplifying, I know. So good job. Internal disorder. Because that's what you do on social media, and that's what, you're, and that's what major news networks do. We oversimplify to make a point. Which Zach Byler would say that's not the way to win an argument. But, and he's right. Internal disorder. The world has to do with external confusion. The, the flesh has to do with an internal disordering of desires. It's not wrong to love our kids. It's not wrong to love money. It's not wrong to enjoy sex. It's when these things get disordered in our hearts and overtake the place that Jesus should take. It becomes a problem when our kids and their happiness become an idol, when our money controls us, as evidenced by, I say, like, debt up to your eyeballs. It's when sex is what we use to define us. That is when our flesh has taken over. And the flesh is that part of ourselves that has yet to experience the transformation of the gospel. Enneagram people, this could be like your shadow side, right? This is kind of where the, your psychological junk kind of hangs out, is in the flesh. Um, the flesh is what you experience when you feel that tug of war inside of yourself between the good and the bad. The flesh is what they're trying to like uh, illustrate on cartoons when like there's a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, right? There is no, there's no actual angel or devil on your shoulder. It doesn't really work like that. It's all happening inside of you. Paul, uh, super Christian, author of the vast majority of the New Testament. Here's Jesus and then, like, in everybody else's mind, there's Paul. Like, Jesus could walk on water. I bet if Paul ran really fast, he could kind of do some, right? And um, Paul, Paul talks about his experience of the flesh like this. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He says, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is isn't my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, and the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced this thing that you don't want to do, you keep doing? This thing that you know is bad, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever noticed that the good things that you want to do you never actually get there. That that tug of war is is the flesh. That tug of war is the flesh. It's this internal struggle that causes us to chase after other desires. Um, and 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 what I want to let you know about is that the gospel promises freedom from this. The gospel promises that we have been that that has been overcome. Dan, go to the I think the immediate next one because I skipped one earlier. Our victory over the flesh is this, when we are in that battle, if you've ever struggled with addiction, you know exactly, you're so in touch with what it means to be trapped by the flesh. Of this, I want to do this thing, but I don't, and there seems to be this other, other, Paul even goes, like, there's almost like this other law at work within me. and so he wrestles through this in Romans chapter 7, and then in Romans chapter 8 it says, but there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Whatever our experience may be, objectively we have been set free from that tug of war. So practicing the way of Jesus is how we experience more of that freedom. I love the prom- this Old Testament promise of the new covenant, where Ezekiel says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put a new spirit in you. He says, I'm going to take your stony, stubborn heart, and I'm going, to put in, I'm going to put in a tender, responsive heart. And when you are struggling in your flesh, the only thing you can think is, I really wish I had a new heart. And that's the promise of the gospel. Dan, can you go back and show me the victory over the world slides? I forgot to show that. Go back to the world for a second. Look at what James says. Uh, go to the next one. You were right, the victory over the world. John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I'm going to unpack that in a second. But I love that John says that Jesus says through John, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen, Jesus gives us victory over the world. Over, over kind of this redefinition that kind of wants to normalize sinful behavior, he's given us victory. He's given us victory by giving us a new heart in the gospel. And he has also overcome the power of the enemy. Again, you know, the world is out there and the flesh is in here, and the enemy, Satan, is kind of out there in this very personal way. Uh, there's external confusion, there's internal disorder, and then there's this personal opposition. Paul says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against enemies, and evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. We are personally opposed through spiritual warfare, but not in the way that we think. I'm really indebted to a guy named uh, Mark Sayers for helping me think through this. Understand, understand this. Um, when you think of war, you think of 20th century warfare. World War One, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, Desert Storm. So you think of soldiers face-to-face, you think of like planes face-to-face, you think of Call of Duty, like the video game, like personal, direct, overt combat. And so when I say spiritual warfare, you think that's what spiritual warfare means. It means like yelling and taking Satan head-on, but that is not the war that Satan is fighting in our time. Satan fights that war overtly in the global south, where people have not heard the name of Jesus, and here's why. If in Warren, Ohio tonight, a committed atheist... A committed atheist is sleeping and up from under his bed comes Satan himself. It doesn't matter what his faith is. He is going to say the name of Jesus real loud and real fast. And the name of Jesus, scripture says, makes the devil flee. It doesn't matter. Just he can't be near the name. It's not magic. It's just the way the world works. And uh, in the global South, where people haven't heard the name of Jesus, the enemy can be overt because uh, the enemy... They, they already kind of believe in spirits, and they don't have the name of Jesus to combat him. In, 21st century, in the 21st century West, spiritual warfare looks a lot like warfare in the 21st century. And this is what that means. It is, it is covert, and it is indirect. So you remember during this election cycle, the kind of talk on the news was that Russia hacked the election, and that's why Donald Trump is president. Whether or not that happened, understand something. We now believe that Russia could do that if they wanted Do you see what just happened? We just were convinced that a foreign power could, if they wanted, use social media and the internet to tip an election their way. And whether or not they did, we now believe that they can. Long before, long before boots of a foreign government soldiers touch our shores, we will already believe that they can win. Because they will have used social media and blogs and mainstream news to push a conversation and win a battle of minds before they ever win a battle of soil. The enemy fights for our our ideas. Right now there are, in Russia and China and in the US of A, rooms full of people managing hundreds of thousands of social media accounts, commenting on blogs, sharing news. They're called troll farms. And this indirect war that fights for the mind of a people is how we do warfare in the 21st century. That is exactly how the enemy does warfare now. He seeds our minds and the minds of our neighbors and the minds of our culture with deceptive ideas. He wants to get us to think a certain way. He doesn't need to oogie boogie show up in the middle of worship and show how powerful he is. All he needs to do is tell us that sex is really good and shouldn't ever be limited. All he ever has to do is tell us that our marriage vows aren't really that important. See, this is what the enemy has done from the beginning. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where we kind of encounter Satan for the first time. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? That's not what God had said. He just changed the language enough to get Eve thinking a certain way. And so Eve fell to a deceptive idea that played to a disordered desire. The text goes on to say, uh, the apple looked good and pleasing to the eye. So she took it and ate it, while Adam watched her, normalized by a sinful society. The enemy's playbook has been the same since the very beginning. He's not a creative genius. It's just that we will, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We are all insane because we keep falling into the same tricks over and over again. the enemy. It says, First uh, Peter, I don't, First Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I look at that and say it's kind of dumb for the enemy to roar because then I see him coming. However, have you ever watched Planet Earth, the uh, BBC documentary? Have you ever watched this? Um, at, when I was in Bible college, we weren't allowed to watch movies on our dorms. Uh, It was kind of a copyright thing, kind of a community life thing. And I do have a a lot of fond memories of that. We were allowed to watch documentaries. So we went to the library one February night, my floor and I, and we rented a projector, and we rented the Planet Earth DVDs, and we projected them on the wall of our lounge, a wall that was probably about 16 feet high and about 20 feet wide. And we watched in slow motion as, like, great white sharks leap out of the water and, like, crush a little baby seal and uh, all this stuff. Well, there's this episode of uh, that they do in the African savanna where 20 lions in the middle of the night take down a lo- uh, an elephant, which you think should be impossible, right? But here's how they do it. The lions stay out of eyesight, run around it, and they roar, which scares the elephant and dis- and disorients it so that it's able to be killed. This is why the Bible calls the devil a roaring lion, because he roars to distract us so we don't see him coming from the other direction. Um, and, yet, and yet, his attempts to deceive and his attempts to accuse always, always fall short. Listen to the good news, what, what John says in 1 John 4, 4, he says, you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Colossians 2 says, in this way, he, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. See, on, on Good Friday, the enemy thinks he win, he's won because he's killed Jesus. What he doesn't know is that he's bitten off more than he could chew. Right? And so the the dying of Jesus and the rising again shows that he's been shamed, that all of his power was useless. We have victory over the world. We have victory over the flesh. We have victory over the devil. The question is, how do we walk in that victory? And I'll get there in a moment, but let me show you two examples. Let me show you two examples of this idea of deceptive ideas uh, that play to disorder desires that, uh, that, are normalized in a sinful society. Two areas that this is, these are areas of battle, so to speak, that the enemy has already won because he's changed our culture's mind. So the first one is living together before marriage. The first one is living together before marriage. The enemy seeds doubt and fear into the minds of a couple. How do I really know if this one's the one? I can't really know that for sure. So we should just test it out. We should just practice we should like sleep together before we get married, because what if it's gross? And so suddenly this deceptive idea of fear and mistrust in our partner plays to disorder desires. Sex sounds good. Um, I'd kind of like to be comfortable, I'd like to not be afraid, I'd like to make sure I know what's what's going on. Our desire for sex and companionship with this person overtake our desire for companionship with Jesus and holiness, disordered desires. And then our, our sinful society normalizes living together. You're making the safe option. You're making the safe bet. This is the wise choice. And so the new pattern here in Trumbull County, watch this, is um, we, get, we, we date, we get engaged, we buy a house together, we get a dog, we get married. And always, I, I, I don't get calls to do people's weddings a year in advance. I get calls to do people's weddings two months in advance. Because the wedding isn't about the marriage. The wedding is about we have this whole party and it's going to be really fun. Oh, crap, we actually need somebody that can legally marry us. I'm always the last person involved in the process. It's super interesting. Um, And the enemy has so normalized living together that right now I sound like your 95-year-old grandmother. Meanwhile, the statistics on abuse in couples that are living together before they get married significantly outweigh abuse after marriage. Couples that uh, couples divorce more quickly when they've lived together than when they don't. Um, super duper interesting. Super, du- And we do, almost every wedding I've done has been for couples that are living together. I don't hate you. I love you. You're worthy of love and affection and my friendship and all that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, I love watching you get married because you are scared until the very minute they say I do. Because that whole time you're not really sure if they're really in it to win it. You may have been living together for years, you might have a shared bank account, you might be doing everything, but until you've got that piece of paper, and I've said, I now pronounce you, you're nervous. Super interesting to me. One is living together. The second one I would call the idolatry of extracurriculars. So the enemy seeds deceptive ideas into parents' minds about the success of their children. And they say, if you're, and the idea says this, if your kids don't have an, important res- an impressive resume when they apply to college, they won't get into college, and then they won't get a job, and then they won't be successful in life. So I'd better get them to basketball and baseball and prep bowl. I mean, guys, and I was the king of this growing up, by the way. I wrote for our local paper, I was in band, I was in choir, I was a part of our youth group. I, was, I mean, I did 77 things. I needed, like, I, you know, I was the guy applying for college that was always, like, attach extra pages if necessary, yes, sir. Like, here's three more. Um, And so, and we do this in the name of raising our kids well, we do this in the name of being a family, but what happens is, the enemy seeds us with deceptive desire, and then what happens, and by the way, I'm not saying extracurriculars are wrong, but I'm just saying watch what happens. So then we run our kids to 15 different activities, and most of us have more than one kid, so husband and wife... Families are never eating dinner together. They're always eating in their car. The husband and wife are never, ever together. They're always running 17 different directions. And and in the process, our desire for family togetherness and raising healthy kids and honestly raising them into the image of Jesus, because the first thing to go is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. The first thing to go is always Jesus. Um, those, those desires get outpaced, disordered desires for success and, and fruitfulness and wellness in our kids and then our society pats us on the back and say, you're a really great parent. You're a great parent for taking your kids to 17 activities. You're a great parent for driving them 15 different directions. Millennials are the first generation to be raised this way. Millennials are the most depressed, anxious, medicated generation in history. Uh, we invite millennials to small groups. We invite millennials to marriage conferences. Do you know what they say to me? They say, I can't come to that. I've got social anxiety. Uh, we, we we go on guys retreats and everybody wants to tell me about their anxiety and their depression and all of these kinds of things and I think they're true. I think some people have legit social anxiety. I think some people have legit depression but I think ultimately we were never taught how to have friends. We were only ever taught how to have competitors so we don't know how to just be with people we get out of college, we're so anxious, we're so depressed, we peak too early, so then we come back and live with mom and dad, which everybody is fine with because mom and dad's marriage ended 20 years ago when we were running kids 15 different directions to soccer and basketball and prep bowl and everywhere else. Our parents' generation has the highest rate of divorce in our country. Right? And we did all of this in the name of raising healthy kids. And right now, I sound shrill. Because the enemy has taken that territory and has moved on. So, how do we walk in victory? If you got a Bible, you can look at Romans 8 really quick. Romans 8. Romans 8 is a chapter all about victory. And Paul says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? AKA, that's verse 31. So, everything from verse 1 to verse 30. He says, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Rhetorical question, answer, yes. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. What is the first word of verse 37? It's there on the screen, church. Can we say that out loud together? No. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. Overwhelming victory is ours in the face of the world the flesh and the devil. Now, if you're a Browns fan or a Steelers fan, you wouldn't know overwhelming victory if it walked up to you on the street and met you and said, hey, my name is overwhelming victory. Okay? We are used to overwhelming utterly shameful defeat, right, Um, with an attitude of there's always next year. What what we have in the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil is is overwhelming victory, and Jesus calls us to look the world, the flesh, and the devil in the face from that posture. And so here's what we do. Here's how we walk in victory. When it comes to Satan's devices, when it comes to the, the devil, we stand against the devil's schemes by internalizing truth. This is unusual to people, Uh, but we stand against, we don't flee from the devil, we stand. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, goes into the desert. Aaron talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. He goes into the desert. He is tempted by Satan himself. Verse 3 is a good example. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes scripture back to him. We internalize scripture so that when we are presented with deceit, we know what truth sounds like. I had a conversation with Art Cooper this morning, and Art said something about, you know, so-and-so said this to me, and, you know, it just has about 10% of a lie in it. It's about 90% true, but there's just 10% of a lie. And when we internalize truth, we didn't have time to, like, debate it and get into it. All we could say was when they said that thing, it had 10% of a lie in it. Right? There was something off. We internalize truth so we know the sound that we hear and when we're presented, we stand. Um, we walk in victory in the world in a way that surprises you. Uh, we engage. Uh, we engage. Go to that next one for me, Dan. We transform the world through our faithful presence. Um, the church I was raised in, there were like 97 homeschool families and uh, homeschooling is great if that's what you're into and Um, i did a master's degree that was in part education and i came home one day and i said like i think we should homeschool our kids and my wife goes i mean do you want to do that (laughs) Um, but uh, a lot of the homeschooling my read on the situation growing up was that we were protecting our kids from the world we were hiding them from the evil influence of the world so that we could raise good little christians We do not need to hide from the world because we have overcome the world. And so we do what Jesus does. We transform the world by stepping into it. We transform the world by stepping into it. Which means you're in this conversation and everybody's flying around about all these disordered desires and deceptive ideas and all these normalized behaviors by a sinful society. It does not mean like you go into work the next day with like a sign painted on your chest that says like, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It is about how do I continue to lovingly engage in relationship with these people with the posture of this, that the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Our faith has overcome the world. It has not been defeated by it. We don't need to hide it to protect it. We can lovingly engage. We can lovingly engage. We walk in victory over the flesh in this way. Uh, We flee. We flee the desires of the flesh and pursue righteousness. The Bible talks about the Bible talks about we, we stand against the enemy and we flee from the desires of the flesh. Which What does that mean? Um, first of all, we don't just run away. We run towards something. But you might end up in a conversation that's gossipy with somebody, a co-worker. And the minute that conversation goes that way, do you know what you do? You don't try to rebuke or steer the conversation a different way. You go, what's that? I hear my name being called. What? What? Hello? Yes? And they're like, nobody's over there. What? I hear my name. What? Right, like you pretend like, listen, you get caught in a conversation, like you pick it, what, my phone's ringing, hello, yes, hello, gotta go, but you you get out of there. uh, uh, Joseph, when he is, um, when Potiphar's wife tries to get him to sleep with her, he leaves, he runs away, leaving his coat, and then he gets thrown in prison, so let's not go that far, but he runs away. We need to run away. When you are up late at night, and you're like thinking about like, I wanna like, I just wanna look a little bit, just wanna look at a little bit of porn, not a lot, just a little bit. You need to run out of the room. You need to throw the device out the window. What Jesus says, it's better to cut off your right hand than for it to cause you to sin. It is better for you to have a flip phone that has no internet than for for it to cause you to sin. We flee the desires of the flesh. You're up late at night and you're thinking, there's that chocolate cake downstairs. Um, I think I want a little bit. You get rid of the chocolate cake, you throw it in the garbage and you throw it outside. You, You flee the desires of the flesh. You flee them when you feel that tug of war. So your practice for this week, first of all, take a beat when, when faced with temptation and ask, what is the source of this temptation? The power of the Holy Spirit in your life is not, is not never being tempted. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life is an extra breath to figure out what's going on. That's all you get, an extra breath. Is this a deceptive idea? Is this a temptation of my flesh? Is this a stupid idea from the world? If deceived by the enemy, respond with truth. Find some passages of scripture. A lot of Bibles have this like 911 bit at the beginning. It's not always my favorite, but I think it can be helpful. Like, here's, I need to know, I need to know more about forgiveness because the enemy's really trying to get me to believe that, I, you know, that I'm going to be stuck in unforgiveness forever. But here's a whole bunch of verses on forgiveness. Um, if challenged by the world, How do I lean in with faithfulness and love? And if met with the temptation of my flesh, how do I get out of there? How do I flee the scene like OJ? You know what I mean? Like how do I, the glove doesn't fit, man. You know what I mean? Um, So what we're going to, what song are we singing next? Okay, so what we're going to do, this is good, this is good. So what we're going to do today um, is we're going to end by just taking communion, which is how we fight our battles, by being in the presence of Jesus. And as we take communion, we're going to sing a song that is true, that I'm no victim. Um, I live with a vision. I'm no orphan, right? Um, I am exactly who God says I am. So we're going to, let's just do it all at once, all right? So let me pray, and then we'll celebrate some true things together. Jesus, thank you that victory is ours, that you share with us your, the spoils of your victory That because you have given us all things, you will not withhold any other good thing. Um, Lord Jesus, my my sincere prayer this morning um, is that for those of us trapped in lies, for those of us overwhelmed by the flesh, for those of us um, captivated by the world, that we would have a bigger vision of who you are. And God, where I poked the bear, politically, otherwise, Lord Jesus, would you uh, make yourself bigger than me and my voice? But where there's truth and conviction to be brought to bear, man, Jesus, like, don't shut up until we get it. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our Father shares with us his overwhelming victory in Christ. And so my prayer is that you would be empowered by the Holy Spirit this week. Uh, to reject the devil's schemes, to overcome the world and to flee the flesh. I love you so much. I'm back in the office uh, tomorrow. So if you've been like texting me and emailing me and I've been ignoring you, it's because I was hanging out with my baby, but I got to love both of y'all now. So peace, we'll see you next week.